0: Christianity puts women in the dark ages. Christians just want women to be quiet and not express their thoughts. The Bible is a misogynistic book written by men who hate women. These are things that I've heard when I'm talking to people about Jesus. It's as if our faith is known more for our perceived stances on gender roles than it is about the power of the gospel. This misunderstanding of our faith can be seen in one of the most popular television shows today, The Handmaid's Tale. Now, this show is a a show, a dystopian future where Christians run the government and women are subjected and, and really ultimately made into second class citizens. And the only thing that they're good at is having babies. Is this what we believe? Are Christians really part of some cabal intent on putting women in their place? That's what many of those who oppose our faith believe. The the world in which we live prides itself on the idea of equality, and anything that stands in the way of perfect, of 100% equality, needs to be destroyed and torn down, even if it means religious institutions. But what about those verses in the Bible? Verses that we just read. On the surface, just reading this, it does, if we're honest, it does seem to be a little misogynistic. It seems to to tell women that they need to be quiet, that they have no uh, ability to serve, that they need to listen to their husbands. It seems that way. This is not simple to work through. This is a a very difficult passage on, on a few different levels. But we owe it to God. We owe it to each other and to ourselves to examine what the Bible says. And we must be ready to change our minds. See, we don't adapt the Bible to culture. We adapt ourselves to what the Bible says. And as we do with anything that is controversial, we recognize that there are differences of opinions on this. There are Christians who still remain orthodox to the faith, but would disagree with my understanding of this passage. And so I think we show grace to those on opposing sides, but we stand firm when we're convinced. Many of our brothers and sisters, though, across the world disagree with this. And that's okay. We stand firm, we stand together on the essentials, and we have the freedom to disagree on those things that are not the primary doctrinal issues. So I want to begin with a a few thoughts to to start this. First, our entire faith is based on what the Bible says, so when it says something, it's important. We stake our lives on this. And second, not just me, not just those behind the pulpit, but every single believer, every single one of you is a preacher of the gospel. You don't have to be ordained, you don't have to have a title, you don't have to have letters behind your name. If you are a follower of Christ, the call to you is to go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. What this means is that we preach what the Bible says. We are all preachers. And it means that God's word takes precedence over the popular culture of the day. Or in academic circles, what this means is that the Bible takes precedence over really, really smart people who think they've figured out that the Bible is incorrect. This is so important because we're constantly being pulled to adapt our faith, to fit in with what's popular or what's deemed to be on the right side of history. We're peculiar people that we read and memorize and study a book that's thousands of years old, and that we have the nerve to believe that this has some effect on our lives today, that this matters. We are strange people, but we study it. We don't need excuses for what the Bible says. We read it. We examine it, and we proclaim it. Now I want to say that if you can't tell already, this is not a church growth passage. This is is not a a sermon that's going to draw all sorts of people in and get excited about hearing this. This is not always a fun one to preach either. This is not a a, a sermon that is easy to, to go through or even to listen to. And so there are a lot of preachers and pastors, who would just avoid this altogether. I also want to say that this is not a gospel issue either. People can disagree and still have fellowship, but how one reads this, how one interprets this does affect how we do church. It does affect so many other things. It affects how we view Scripture. Scripture. See, there's an argument that's made that this letter uh, uh, to to Timothy in the church in Ephesus was really only written to him, that it doesn't really apply to us, especially this part. And so some will explain it away by saying, well, they were having issues in the church in Ephesus, that the women were were dressing too fancy, that that women were speaking up too loud, that the women were not uh, following after biblical leadership. You say, well, I've never heard that. Well, you may have heard someone say that they're a red-letter Christian, meaning that the words of Jesus matter more. And so what some people would say is, well, this is only important for the church in Ephesus. This doesn't really have an effect on us. Here's a warning I want to give to anybody who thinks that. You are setting yourself up to discount, disregard, and deny any parts of the Bible that don't fit in well with your cultural understanding. If your idea of equality supersedes what the Bible says, your idea of equality is not right. It is the Bible that we stand upon, not outside those doors, not what the world says. It's what God tells us to do. And in this type of discussion, we need to make sure that we understand that the Bible, the entire Bible, is God's Word. Every word of it, regardless if it's red or black, is God's word. Now, what does this mean then when we read something that seems to be offensive? If we printed this passage out and put it on a billboard or put it on a big sign outside of our church, do you think we'd make a lot of friends? This this is, on the surface, it seems offensive. So what do we do with this? Some people say, well, Jesus was a whole lot nicer to women than the Apostle Paul was. I've been told that, that that I like Jesus, but I really don't like Paul. And I said, you know that Paul's words come from Jesus, right? They're they're the same, they're coming from the same source. So they say this contradicts what, what Jesus has said. So, what does this mean? Well, it, first, it means that it's not contradictory, and the contradiction's only in our mind. We're not understanding it correctly if we think that it contradicts. Second, the gospel is offensive. So, how can we expect people to understand who are not of Christ, people who are not part of the family of God, to understand this and say, well, that sounds fine? Unless our mind has been renewed, unless we've been regenerated, unless that we have give, been given a new way to view the world, we're going to see this and be completely offended at this. How dare you say that a woman has to follow after her husband? How dare you? Let me ask you this. Have any of God's commands been acceptable to those outside of his people? I mean, really? Really? Have any of these commands, yes, people love the whole love your neighbor and treat others well and, and those things that Jesus has said, but does the world accept the other things that Jesus says? Unless you are born again, you will suffer. If you do not follow me, you will suffer the wrath of God. God and the Bible are countercultural. Paul was... A pastor writing to another pastor in Ephesus. And, and the truth is that in Ephesus, as well as many of the early churches, the women were, were, were still seen as second-rate citizens. If you've ever seen a mosque, you, you kind of get the idea that women will often, almost always, worship in a different room than the men. And so this was kind of happening in the churches at the time, that there were women who, who, who in, at least in the early church and in Jewish culture, were not welcomed with the men. So they were treated as something secondary. The Apostle Paul is saying, we want women as part of our service. We want women included. We want women to serve. This is so incredibly countercultural. And then we think of the other things in the Christian faith, denial of self for the betterment of others, giving up your time, energy, and money to bless other people, praying and obeying, praying to and obeying a God that you can't see, sacrificing your comfort for enemies. All of these are countercultural. Now, this is not a first-tier gospel issue, but it's still important. How we view this passage will affect how we view the rest of the Bible, and and if, if you like to read history and study history, go look at the denominations that started rejecting these ideas in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, and you will see denominations, entire denominations that are heading towards, if they haven't already gone apostate, denominations that have nothing to stand on, that the Jesus that they proclaim is not the Jesus found in Scripture. Look at those groups who believe that there were no differences between men and women in the church and in the home and you will find that they are heading to a position that they do not want to be in or that we don't want them to be in where they are no longer considered part of the faith. A downward trajectory doesn't end up in the pit overnight. It often takes years and when churches deny the basic teachings of scripture in favor for things that are acceptable to the culture the spiral downward continues the issue is merely this issue is merely a door that lets other things flow right in and so we begin with the truth that the entire bible is god's word and then we move into what paul is talking about that god has created male and female differently and that his intention was that men and women serve him equally but in different roles. So God created males and females differently. And, and contrary to popular opinion of the day, it doesn't take a PhD to figure this out. There are not a billion genders, there are, according to scripture, male and female. This is what God has created. And there are differences, differences biologically. Differences in history, differences in what the Bible tells us what our roles are. Now before we go any further, this begs the question of how God can create us with differences and then still see us as equals. And my answer to that is different roles and responsibilities in life situations do not define our worth. say, well wait, my children are no less human than I am but they better obey me. They better submit. Your boss is no more human than you are, yet you must submit to his or her leadership. They have authority over you. This is submission, and it's happening all around us. But because we've seen abuses of it, we're taken aback at anything that says we must submit to someone else. We hate that. We don't like someone telling us what we have to do this has been in place since the beginning. It's not an accident that Paul here in verses 13 and 14 refers back to the creation of Adam and Eve. Why do you think he does that? See, if he's giving an isolated instruction to the church, if he's saying this is only for you guys in Ephesus, this doesn't apply to anybody else, this is only for you, why would he build a theological case for what he's saying? The truth is that Paul was giving this instruction from God himself to the Ephesian church, to the Corinthian church, and to every church that comes after. And there are multiple things that he refers to that we see in the creation account in Genesis that shows us the uniqueness between men and women. But this doesn't, contrary to what people say, this doesn't mean that men are superior. See, this gets lost in conversations about gender, especially today far more than it did even 10 years ago. This idea that the Christian faith or that the Bible tells people that women are somehow inferior is nonsense. Difference doesn't mean superiority or inferiority. It just means what it means. It means that God created us differently. And this is important to understand Because the rest of the passage and the concepts in it will make no sense if you don't understand it. Without truly understanding the words that Paul is writing, these verses absolutely do sound like they're intended to mistreat women. So one of the key concepts of reading the Bible is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If these verses sound like Paul hates women, all we need to do is to look at the impact that women had on him to see if that's true. We see how Jesus treated women to see if that's true. And so what Paul has said and what Paul has written and who has influenced Paul in his life, we know that he values women. So how in the world could Paul say that women must learn quietly with all submissiveness? To our 21st century minds, this is clearly oppressive, isn't it? To use the word Uh, For quiet, or the word "quietly" is the same word that we saw in chapter two, verse two, where it says that we need to pray that so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. It's the same word, so we know that Paul is not saying that women have to be completely one hundred percent silent. We know that the tone of Paul's voice is writing in verse two is the same tone that we need to hear in verses eleven and twelve. It's not total silence. It's not a prohibition on asking questions. It's not a prohibition on speaking. What Paul is telling the ladies in the church is that they need to live a life of quietness when speaking of authority inside the local church. Quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises the authority that God has placed over her. This may strike you as misogynistic. I get it. I, the words here, they're Troublesome if you don't see this whole unfolding story. But the fact that women were even allowed to be involved in learning in the early church is groundbreaking for people, particularly the Jews. In many ways, they were second-class citizens. And then Christianity comes in and says, No, you were created in the image of God. You are encouraged. No, you are commanded to participate in the worship of God. Flipping everything upside down. This was freedom for women to pursue their gifts in the confines of God's established order. Christianity has made it so that not only can women worship and learn, they can express it. They can teach, they can train others that they can give away what God has given to them. This is liberation. So, even if you accept what Paul is saying is true and trustworthy, you may still be bothered by verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's look at things that help us shed a light on this. Titus 2 says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul reminds Timothy that he should remember how he learned the scriptures. Do you you remember this? He was trained by Eunice and Lois, his mother and his grandmother. Apollos, the pastor of the church in Corinth who followed after Paul, was speaking in Acts 18 in Ephesus, the same town of Timothy's church. We see what happened. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla was a woman, and she pulled Apollos aside and told him, the gospel told him how, what the Bible is intended for or what God's word says more accurately. Now, Some may say, well, that's, that's it. She spoke so I can speak. I can, I can lead. I can train. I can do this. And I want you to think through this. I, I, I've even hap- had it happen to me over the years in a church service. Well, I'll say something from the pulpit or in a classroom, and I'll have a woman come up to me and say, hey, I, I don't think your interpretation was entirely correct. I don't think you handled this word correctly. And we reason together. And there have been times that I've been shown a better way. I've had women give me suggestions or corrections, and it's been helpful. See, this is why I think we see this with Apollos, that a woman gave him instruction, gave him correction, gave him something to think about. She taught him. This is why it's important to understand that the idea of teaching, formal teaching, goes together with what Paul says next. Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. When we continue our study, uh, you will see in 1 Timothy requirements for an elder. And the elder is to be male. And all of the, the, the words, the, the pronouns that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2, talking about elders and beyond, is they are masculine. And this is a key to understanding this. Paul is not saying that a woman can never speak or they can't have a voice. In a church, the church should be led by elders. And Paul says that those must be men. And so the important things that we deal with are dealt with by the elders. But, but get this, what happens in a few weeks when we propose a budget? You vote on it, right? And Baptists are really good at voting, and so we, we vote on budget, and we vote on staff, and all the leadership, and elders, and deacons, and all of those things we vote on. So the ultimate responsibility of a church does not rest in the senior pastor. It does not rest in the elders. The ultimate responsibility in a congregational church is with you. And our church is probably, like most churches, more women than men. So you do have a voice in leadership. You do have a voice in the direction. You do have a voice in what we do as a church if you are a woman. And so it's no accident that Paul moves from this issue, though, of gender roles into the church, right into his instruction about elders and deacons in chapter 3. So Paul is not saying that women don't have a voice. He's not saying that women have to put tape over their mouths. He's not saying that women have no input on what happens in the church. He's not saying that. But he's saying that the role of an elder is very clear. An elder means pastor. Pastor and he's drawing a line he's saying that men and women are created differently but or created equally but differently same person, people that are made in the image of God but different roles and responsibilities and so i understand why this is difficult we have been conditioned to believe that We are created 100% equally, which means we have equal responsibilities because we see women as CEOs. We see women as presidents of companies. We see business owners. We see politicians. Everything that you can think of, you will find women, and they're often successful. Dare I say maybe even more successful than men. But Jesus did not die for a business or a company. Jesus died for his bride, the church, and he has given us rules and guidelines for how we are to behave in worship. There's order in all of this, and this is what it comes back to. Order. say, well, I don't like that. Well, there's order in our lives. There's order in government. We see this in the world, but the Bible also talks about this, that we are to obey leaders, even when they're ungodly leaders. As long as they don't cause us to sin, God has placed those people in our lives, and we are to pray for them and obey them. There's order in your job. Most people have a boss. They have someone to answer to. Even if they're the CEO, they have to answer to shareholders and a board. There's order in creation. God created Adam first and then Eve and then gave them dominion over the animals and plants. And there's order in the home. 1 Peter 3, Titus 2, Colossians 3 all give clear instructions for how the home is to be structured. These are basic instructions that God has given to us to reflect his glory. So, why would there be any debate about order in the church? God has created the genders to be different. Still equal, but given different gifts and roles to play within the world and within the home. And the same goes in the church, 1 Corinthians 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Do we allow culture to dictate what the Word says? Or do we allow the Word to dictate what we do? God has given his church and his people a set of rules to follow. It is not our job to reason them away. Our job is to obey. Even those parts of the Bible, and if we were all honest and laid our cards out on the table, there are parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Things that we believe but we wrestle with. Things that we we know to be true but we still struggle with. So you say, well, what's the reason for all of this? What what is Paul's point in this passage? The real issue in all of this and the real issue in all of our sin is a rejection of authority. All of our sin comes back to the point that we think we know better than God does. Paul writes in verses 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor aggressor. This means that Paul is talking to the church, not just the Ephesian Church, but all churches. He said it in Corinth too, but here he, he's rooting his point in theology and say, "Well, what does Adam and Eve have to do with this? Remember back to the garden. Remember what Paul says in Romans five about this. Paul lays the guilt on Adam, showing that he is our federal head, meaning that his sin has condemned every single person that comes after. Adam is our representative. His guilt belongs to all of us. Adam is blamed for this. And why? Why Eve was the first person to sin, so why does Paul in Romans five say that Adam was the first one? It's not that women are more gullible. The underlying cause for their rejection of authority was that they reversed the roles that God has given to them. Man was created first. This is what Paul says. His first responsibility was to lead and protect his wife. Adam's duty was to protect his wife, just as every husband's job first is to protect their wife. But Adam and Eve switched places. Leadership had been transferred to Eve so much so that Adam either let it happen or he was so far away from his wife that he couldn't see her when she was being deceived. Adam, a husband, should have done what Jesus ultimately did. Adam should have told that snake, Get out, and stomped on its head. But we know that Adam failed. This is why the Bible calls Jesus the the last Adam. That Jesus did what Adam could not do. Adam failed in his ability to love and care for his wife. He was a weak man. Something that God did not create man to be. And so looking at our text, it's not that women are incompetent to teach or to lead. Women lead well. Women have played a role in my life. Incredible roles. Some of you here, even. Some of you ladies here know the Bible far better than I do. And I would be willing to guess that some of you ladies could probably preach better than I do. Maybe all of you could. I don't know. But be sure to hear me on this. There are avenues for women to use their gifts in the church. A prohibition from one area of teaching or leadership does not limit your ability to exercise those gifts in others. The issue before us is that bending scripture to fit the cultural norms would compromise how men and women are supposed to relate to each other. And I I want to say this with as much gentleness as I can muster. What we feel about the Bible doesn't matter, what we believe that's influenced by culture, doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. What matters is what the Bible says. Now, some will hear this and read these passages, and every ounce of their being will fight against it, will push against it. They don't want to hear that God has created men and women differently to accomplish his purposes, often in very different ways. We all have the same standing before God in our sin, and as believers, we have the same standing as sons and daughters. We are all children of God, and God doesn't have sons or daughters that He loves better than others. But we know there's a difference. The fact is, the people in the world—they, the the people who are not believers—they suppress the truth. They, they know it to be true, and this is a difficult passage. And it gets more difficult. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. The Apostle Paul sometimes writes in a way that is hard to understand. It seems on the surface that there are some contradictions in what he's saying because, man, man, There's no preacher that's been more gospel-centered than the Apostle Paul, but yet he says here, at least on the surface, that if a woman has a child, she's going to be saved. But we know that's not true. But remember what he says in verse 14. It talks about women being in sin, and then verse 15 talks about women being saved. Paul was doing what we do without even realizing it. He was using a literary device to contrast the two extremes of one's soul. And using scripture again to interpret scripture, there is no possible way that Paul believes that women are saved through having children. That doesn't make any sense. That would leave men in a really difficult situation, wouldn't it? This would contradict what Jesus said and what Paul has preached. Paul's grammar shows that he wasn't referring to Eve or to Mary either. Uh, one pastor put it this way, and this may be helpful. Paul taught that although a woman precipitated the fall, women are preserved from that stigma through childbearing. A woman led the human race into sin, yet would be- women benefit humankind by replenishing it. Beyond that, they have the opportunity to lead the race to godliness through their influence on their children. Far from being second-class citizens, women have the primary responsibility for rearing godly children. Obviously God doesn't want all women to be mothers. We know this. We, we know that some have been called to singleness to, to, to serve the Lord with more of their time and energy. And we know that there, that there are, are women who have, who have been called to, to not have children so that they can serve on the mission field or serve in the local church and give all that they have to that. Others, for reasons we don't always understand, have been allowed to be childless. But in general, in general, what I think we're seeing here is that motherhood is the greatest contribution that a woman can make here on earth. The pain that women suffer in childbearing is a result of the first sin. Bearing children doesn't absolve you from that, but it does take that stigma away. And Paul probably makes this point because there were all sorts of false teaching going on in the church One likely being that only those who gave up their families, left their families to go serve the Lord, were going to be blessed and experience God. His aim was to encourage the women in the church to serve the Lord by taking care of their families. Now, I I realize this probably deserves a lot more time and a lot more kind of pulling things apart and reading each word and examining the Greek. I I realize that. And limited by time and a lack of knowledge in every point of Scripture. But with all my limitations and understanding, there are really things that are clear in Scripture. First, God created the universe in an orderly way. And he wants us to reflect this glory through our obedience, even when we don't like it or we don't understand it. In this discussion, I'm reminded of the words from Isaiah 66. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are we trembling at the word of God? Are we coming with a contrite spirit? Or are we allowing the culture to dictate what we believe? Are we saying, God, I don't fully understand why this is here, but I trust you. God, I don't understand this passage. I don't get it. Help me to understand. And even when I don't, even when I can't, I still will follow you. God, I know that you've created the world. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. I am but a speck of dust in the history of time. You are God, the creator and sustainer of everything. So even when I don't understand it, I trust that you know what you're doing. It's my prayer that we all come to the Bible with a heart ready to be taught and corrected. Not by me, but by God's word. I pray this for myself every week because I, I only have really one responsibility when I come to you, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. To, to tell you this is what God says. I do this with trembling, not because I'm afraid of what you may say, but I'm, I want to honor God with faithful and honorable teaching. So I don't know if I've muddied the waters for you, I don't know if this is made more confusing to you. but. I can say that this passage is not easy. That in light of other scripture, we see that God has a high view of women. Over and over in scripture, we see women being used for amazing things in the story of God's plan. We see women who did some pretty bad things, and they were still used by God. We see a faith that even today esteems women higher than anything else. Other faiths, other religions may pretend, but the truth is what Paul says and what Jesus says is that every single person, male or female, can be known by God through their repentance and faith. That those with a humble and contrite heart can come on their knees before the throne of God and can be called their son or daughter. This is a special plan that God has. This is not something in 1 Timothy 2 that we come in believing already, but we know that as exercise stretches someone, as as training stretches someone, as reading and studying stretches someone, reading a passage that is difficult, that is hard to understand, that we may even disagree with, it pushes us to uncomfortable places. And this is one. But my prayer is that we continue to pour over God's word even when there's those passages like this. Would you pray with me?